0: Father, we we come before you right now, Lord, I pray you'd, as as Mark had prayed, I pray you open your word before us here now, Lord, that we'd have eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord Jesus, that when we walk out of here tonight, we'd be transformed, we'd be filled and renewed, you'd re-baptize us, Lord, with the Holy Spirit as we saw Peter often pray, fill me anew, Father. God, take your word and open our eyes, show us these things as we read the book of Numbers, Lord, and, and a census and, and these different things, Lord, but, but there's so much here, God, that you want us to see a God of decency and an order. Lord, I pray that we would settle right in now, Lord, and we would humble ourselves, that we would have hearts and eyes and ears finely tuned to what your spirit, your Holy Spirit, has to say to us tonight. We pray and ask this in your name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to be picking up as we've come as far as Numbers chapter four, verse 21. So if you'll open your Bibles to Numbers chapter four, verse 21. And if you don't have a Bible, again, raise your hand and one of the ushers will bring you a Bible. And while you're doing that, I don't know if you saw the Lord's blessed us. We, uh, we, have, a, we have had our pulpit. It was made by a, a gentleman in Calvary Chapel. Um, he had blessed us with this a number of years ago. Well, well, we went and just picked this up. He blessed us with this as well. He gifted this to the church. He just worked hard. He made it with his hands. And, and this do, in remembrance of me, we now have our communion table that can be brought forward for communion days where we do that. And so we just, it's awesome to see the Lord move. And we've ordered the menorah that'll go to the side of it and the word, the Holy Spirit, the word of God obviously being on it. And just a you know, constant reminder, this do in remembrance of me as we fellowship with Jesus Christ. We're blessed, aren't we? We're blessed. We're so blessed. Well, we're going to continue. When we were reading about, really, the duties of the sons of Korah, the Korites, which their job was to see to the things within the tabernacle, right? Specifically, after Aaron and his sons went in and took threads or cloth of blue and or par- scarlet or like purple like that would cover everything that they were allowed to then go in and they were then able to t- carry these things out and basically move as the tabernacle would move well we're moving to Gershon and we're going to move to Meriah and we're going to basically see the, uh, the ultimate census of the Levites and then God's going to take us on this idea of Once again, he's going to draw us back to ceremonially unclean. Talking about spiritual sin. You know, sin within the camp. What is going on? Is is there defilement? Because just because, especially I should say, because God dwells with the people. That was the point of the mercy seat. God dwelling with his people, the tabernacle. They were to be holy. They were to be separated. They were to be consecrated. And that hasn't changed in 3,500 years. That's what he wants for you and I today. To be holy, to be separated, to be consecrated. To have a singleness and intention of thought for Christ and Christ alone. And, and that hasn't changed. And then we'll see that he, he provides a way if time provides. He, he then takes us into, into verses 11 of chapter 5 where he's going to go through and talk about wives and, and, and the potential or possibility of adultery. And wives, we've, you've all come a long way when I read that passage. You know, having them drink this concoction and, you know, if, if their gut was full and, you know, all this because there was sin in the camp. It still comes back to sin in the camp. Is there, is there something going on that way? And then finally, if the Lord should allow, we'll go into chapter 6 and we'll study the law of the Nazarites. Again, what is that? What is a Nazarite? One that was separated and consecrated. That's, That's what he's taking us on as we go through this. Not only were these Gershonites and these Mirrites and obviously the Kohathites, they too were separated. Remember, they were redeemed by God, governed by God, Israel, that's the name. They were redeemed for this specific purpose. And they weren't to look at each other and go, hey, I'm a Kohathite, and I, boy, I get to handle all the, the tabernacle. I get to handle this, whereas, you know, maybe the Gershonites, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm handling the tent coverings. You know, or, or maybe, you know, I'm the, the Mirrites, and I, I just deal with the envelope of the building, of the tabernacle, the boards. and what. Nobody's to turn around and look back and say, well, I serve in this way, and I serve in that way, and therefore, my way's better. You know, na 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 nah, nah, you know, none of that nonsense. That's of the flesh, Every single point of service is important in God's eyes. You see all these cables up here. There's, there's someone's service in this church whose job is to make sure that these cables get plugged into that box somehow in some way. And that in turn, because of that, sound is transmitted and we all get to hear the word and there's no distraction and people that are online can hear from California to Hawaii to wherever they are, that they get to tune into service. You know, your church, your, your, the body of Christ is bigger than just what we have gathered here. It's amazing what God's doing. So as we read in verse 21, he says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also take a census of the sons of Gershon by their father's house, by their families, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old. And just, just as a reminder, you remember the first census was for, you know, one month old and up like that, this census now is 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old. Not to say that after 50, all of a sudden you were able to retire and you had no... No, what, what happened is then you went in and you were instructing others how to do this, or you were then giving in different ways. You were then serving in different ways. And those under 30 also were serving. What were they doing? Well, many believe um, that they were already in training by 20 and that they were watching and learning and they were waiting for their turn, that as they would turn of age, that they had the privilege to come in and serve in the tabernacle of God where God would dwell. And it wasn't something of, oh, do I have to serve? It was, I can't wait till it's my turn. You know, I pray for a heart like that here. For, for all the believers in Christ here, that when it's your turn to teach in the children's ministry or your turn as a greeter or your turn as a, you know, whatever the Lord has you doing, maybe plugging in one of those wires, it's all important. Are you excited? Do you look forward to it? I can remember, you know, I did. I look forward to just coming, and I, I had the privilege of teaching a children's ministry. I looked so forward to being with those little ones. I couldn't wait to open my Bible. I couldn't wait to share with them what God had showed me and to get them really excited to know that they have a hope bigger than what they can even comprehend yet at their age. It was such a beautiful gift. But he says, from 30 years old and above even to 50 years old, you shall number them, all who enter to perform the service, to do the work in the tabernacle meeting. This is the service of the families of the Gershonites in serving and carrying. They shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle. Later on, we'll read they're given carts. The Gershonites and Mirites are given carts, right? The others, uh, Kohathites are not. They shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle and the tabernacle of meeting with its covering, the covering of badger skins that is on it, the screen for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the screen for the door of the gate of the court, the hangings of the court, which are around the tabernacle and altar, and their cords. See that? Whoever's ministry that is, they had cords ministry too. Right, all their furnishings for their service and all that is made for these things, so they shall serve. Aaron and his son shall assign all the service of the sons of the Gershonites and all their tasks and all their service. And you shall appoint to them all their tasks as their duty. This is their service of the families of the sons of Gershon in the tabernacle meeting, and their duty shall be under the authority of Ithmar, the son of Aaron the priest. So we're going to read in verses 29 through 33, once again, Ithmar is going to be assigned again to oversee that. Why is that? Well, remember, Aaron had four sons, right? Abihu and, right? Who else? Abinadab, right? Gone? You guys are like, I don't know. Turn. Okay, we can turn back. Well... He had two sons, and what did they do? They offered profane fire. They wanted to worship God the way they wanted to worship him. And they thought that they could enter the Holy of Holies as an example, anytime they wanted. And only the high priest was able to enter the Holy of Holies twice a year, really on one day, once a year, but twice. Once for himself, as we read, and once for the people. God has a way he wants to be worshiped. He is God. Yes, he's our friend, but he's God first. Well, They turned around and they did it their way. And it cost them their lives. And because of that, and I just want you to understand, because sometimes people don't realize sin and the consequence of sin has an effect on others. Often it has quite an effect on others. Because as we're going to read now, what's going to happen? Well, because out of the four boys, two of them are now dead, are not able to help and serve. The other two brothers have to do what? Double the duty. They have to pick up and do double the work and double the service. You see, there are consequences to sin. Even if we don't always see them or understand them, sometimes we can be very selfish in our sin. Often pride is self-centered in nature. When When you really look at pride, Lucifer is a great example of Isaiah 14. You know, I will five times. It was all about him. He wasn't concerned with the other angels and the heavenly hosts that were worshiping God and, and he didn't even do anything as far as carrying out the act. It was the mere thought. It was the mere thought. And what was his job? What was the, the privilege he was given? He was a worship minister. He was a worship leader. And he was to sing and praise to God. But he thought he should be God. Well, So now we're going to see that Ithamar and Eleazar are going to have to now carry this load. And that's what happens to the body of Christ. When we see others fall because of sin, others in ministry fall because of sin, somebody else has to come and and support that because somebody else did what was right in their eyes. So next time we we're in those positions or we're at that fork in the road, the proverbial fork, if I use the term, think about it. Lord, is this going to affect somebody else? Does my sin affect others? Think about families and the sin of, of a parent or, or a spouse or a child and how it affects the whole family, doesn't it? It doesn't just affect that one individual. It's just as Jesus said, a little leaven spoils the lump. You know, the whole thing, a little leaven spoils the whole thing. As for the sons of Mirai, you shall number them by their families and by their father's house. From 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, you shall number them, everyone who enters the service to do the work of the tabernacle meeting. And this, excuse me, is what they must carry as all their service for the tabernacle meeting, their boards of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its sockets. They were handling the building materials of the envelope of that. And the pillars around the court were their sockets, their pegs. Someone had a job of, of managing to make sure every single peg was accounted for. Just think about that. Cords, Every single court accounted for. Maybe you have a job and you sit back and go, what I do, does it matter? Yes, it does in the eyes of the Lord. It absolutely matters what you're doing. You may not see the eternal impact of it, but your job, just by being there, you might be the the living epistle that someone reads by their very life. You may not even know that. You may not even understand it. You may never get the privilege of seeing that, you know, played out before your eyes, but I do believe in heaven, you will. You will, you know, someone might come up to you and say, because of just the way you handled this difficult situation, when I saw you at work, I began to question things in my own life, and then somebody came up to me on the street and says, "Hey, do you want to go to a, you know, a meeting or something like that?" And he's, "Sure, I'll go, I'll go listen to some worship music. Great?" And next thing, you know, they end up at church, and they come forward and get saved. And the reason they began to think differently about it was because of your life, because God used you to plant a seed. What a great privilege we have, all of us. We need to think eternally, not temporally, because then we, you wonder why people get depressed when they begin to focus on only the here and now. When everything in your Bible talks about the thereafter. You know, at most, what do you live, 100 years, 90 years, 80? You're going to spend millions and billions and trillions in far bigger numbers than I can count in eternity. How much time are you investing in eternity, in the treasures of eternity? Do you look at the duties of where God has you? Are you doing those things? Are you being faithful to your boss in the, the time you're at work? You know, the ministry you serve in, are you coming prepared? You know, I, I'm talking to my heart, okay? I, I, I have to, my heart has to be right. Before I can open this word before you, God has to work on my heart with this. Hey, Matt, are, are you opening your Bible? Hey, Pastor? Are you, are you spending time in the word with me? But he goes through all of these. He's in the sockets, everything, the cords with all their furnishings and their service, you shall assign to each man by the name of the item he must carry. This is the service of the families of the sons of Mirai as all the service or as their service for the tabernacle of meeting. Under the authority, someone's placed an authority above them, of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. He's doing double duty. He just was put under, they were, the Gershonites were put under him. Now he's got two different Levitical priesthoods or families that way. Not priesthoods, pardon me. Families that way, he's got to look after. And Moses and Aaron and the leaders of the congregation numbered the sons of Coathites by their families and by their father's house from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years, everyone who entered the service for the work in the tabernacle meeting. And those who were numbered by their families were 2,750. These were the ones, and you can bring up the slide if you'd like, Kevin, there. These were the ones who were numbered... Of the families of the Kohathites, all who might serve in the tabernacle of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And those who were numbered of the son of Gershon by their families and by their father's house, from thirty years old and above, even to fifty years old, everyone who entered the service for work in the tabernacle of meeting, those who were numbered by their families, by their father's house, were two thousand six hundred and thirty. These are the ones who numbered who were numbered of the families of the sons of Gershon, of all who might serve in the tabernacle of meeting, whose Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord. Those of the families of the sons of Mirai, who were numbered by their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for the work on the tabernacle of meeting, those who were numbered by their families were 3,200. These are the ones who were numbered of the families of the sons of Mirai, whose Moses and Aaron numbered according to the word of the Lord, as they were commanded, in other words, by the hand of Moses. All who were numbered of the Levites, whom Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of Israel numbered by their families and by their father's house, from 30 years old. Some of it's, I, I understand, some of it's a little bit redundant here, but he's, he's bringing this point out. From 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who came to do the work work of service and the work of Bearing burdens in their tabernacle meeting. Do you see that? Bearing burdens, serving. Is it a burden for you? Bearing another's burden? Do we bury each other's or do we bear one another's burdens that way? We're called to in scripture. But look what it ends up in. I mean, it's, it's amazing when you look at the total number. Those who were numbered were 8,580. That seems like a big number, right? But think about this. How many in the church at this time, right? If I I use that term to speak of Israel. You had somewhere between two to three million. We've already covered that number and how we got there. You have two to three million, right? We have a couple hundred here, right? Or a few hundred, whatever it is. And we have, you know, two full-time pastors. We have, you know, full-time secretaries. We have some staff members, elders that are serving all the time. You know, Three hundred people, whatever the number is here, and uh, you think about all the work that has to go. And a lot of you, almost mo- most of you, serve in some capacity in some way here. And you know all that has to be done. Two to three million. Just imagine an eight thousand five hundred and eighty. It seems like a large number, but in two to three million, is it? You know what it actually comes out to be? It's three hundred and fifty to one. For every 350 people, you have one Levite to minister. That's a lot. That's a lot. They need help. They needed help. And God provided, God dedicated and redeemed the Levites to be these ministers to this church. You know why? Discipleship. It wasn't about growing the numbers, He didn't walk out on a campaign and say, as you go in, I want you to do this campaign and send out this and that and the other thing to draw all these people into the new age hip church. Well, he didn't need 8,580 people to do that. He could have got a good marketing agent and, you know, put them right out there and say, you know, here's a free bottle of water in the desert. And oh, by the way, come on in. But that's not God's heart. God from the very beginning is a God of discipleship. He's a God of mentorship. That's what the church is to be. That's why Ephesians 4 says it's the work of the ministry. What? What is the work of the ministry? You and I gathering, encouraging, equipping each other. Being under the word so that we can go out and we can give the good news and we understand why we believe what we believe. He's, in, he's created us to be intelligent believers, you know, worshippers. Disciple makers, reproducers, healthy sheep reproduce. They just do. Healthy sheep naturally reproduce. They just live their lives. And by doing so, people come to Christ. Maybe they don't know it because they don't get to see, you know, as we've already talked about. But healthy sheep reproduce. That's why in the last few years that we've been here, I've been amazed at what God's doing. But I know why God's doing it. Because the word of God is going forward, people are becoming disciple makers, they're reproducing, and you're going to a second service and the church is growing. It's not because we're out there turning around and saying, we want to grow the church. It's the exact opposite of every marketing campaign or newsletter that you get as a pastor from all these companies out there that want to sell you their marketing plan. You know what we do? And throw it right away. I've got the word of God. You've got the word of God. What else do you need? God will transform. He will renew your heart. He will, you know when there's things that are off. He speaks directly to you and he's gentle and he knows exactly where things are and he knows how to speak with you in a way to help you. Okay, Lord. Lord. Maybe I got a little off. Now I get it, Lord. Okay, I'm I'm right where I need to be, Jesus. Thank you for loving me enough to be real. Thanks for not being a respecter of persons, Lord. That's discipleship. That's beautiful. That's what you're all called to do. You're disciple makers. And the word of God isn't just for you right now. You, you believe it is, and it is. It is to transform your heart and mind. It is to renew your mind. It is to take help you to take every thought captive. But you know what else it's doing? It's being written on the tablet of your hearts. And as you walk into a situation or a place, and all of a sudden, and some of you may know this experience because it's happened to you, you could be sitting in a simple grocery store and you turn around and how was your day? Oh, and somebody begins to tell you horrible, tragic things that are going on in their lives. And all of a sudden, out of your mouth, you turn around and offer a word of encouragement about something that is so personal to them that only they would know, or someone in their lives like that would know, their family member. And, and it's right out of something that maybe they heard on the radio that morning, saw on a bumper sticker on the way to the store, and then saw your smiling face there as you went, I, and you as you're saying it, you, you, you kind of catch yourself. Because in the moment you're like, whoa, that's from the word of God. And you don't even know maybe what passage it's from. You know, what part of the Bible? You don't have the whole entire Bible memorized. It's the Holy Spirit taking what's written on the table of your hearts and he's giving it application into that individual's life. That's what God was doing here. He was preparing a group of individuals, a people that would come together and form the two to three million of the Church of Israel. At that time, to send them in to be his representatives, his ambassadors, to a land and a people that were practicing pagan practices. You know, murdering their children, burying burying body parts and walls in their houses, you know, leprosy and disease and all this wickedness, sexual immorality and everything else that was going on. And they were to come in and they were to do what? They were to tell them about their father in heaven. Is anything really changed? Are you and I not living in a time where we're seeing incredibly deplorable, wicked things happen in a way that we have never, ever seen them happen before in our nation and around the world? Unlike anything we can remember growing up, our parents talking about, even our grandparents talking about. And we're living in these days like this. And he's still got his remnant. He still has the bride of Christ, his church, for those that will stand in the gap, the prophet and prophetesses of this day, that will stand with the word of God and stand with him, even if it means you stand alone. Has it changed? Well, let's read about what he has to say that was really I think striking when you look at they were just newly brought out of Egypt. They had dealt with some of the sin, but not all the sin was brought out of them. There's a sanctification process, just like you and I. And he wanted to make sure they understood that uncleanness, you know, things that would separate them from right relationship with God would be dealt with. On a spiritual aspect, from a typology, but also even for disease prevention. He wanted to protect the children. Well, let's finish verse 49. According to the commandment of the Lord, they were numbered by the hand of Moses, each according to his service, according to his task, and they were numbered by him as the Lord Moses commanded. Or commanded Moses, excuse me. The Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper. And we know, what did leprosy? Obviously, there's a disease of leprosy. But spiritually, leprosy was represented symbolically of what? Sin. Everyone who has a discharge, everyone who becomes defiled by a corpse, touching things that are unclean, therefore not able to what? Be a part of ministering or ministry? Are there things in your life right now that you want to serve at this church in ministry, but God is keeping you from doing that because there's things that are unclean in your life? Have you been willing to lay that down and repent and then enter into the service he has called you for? You shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp that they may not defile their camps. You see that? It's to stop that sin from continuing. It was, to, it was to stop it. It wasn't that God was being, you know, a mean dad. No, if there was disease, he was stopping the disease. Stop. Look, if there's disease there, let's stop the proliferation of disease, right? You might think of it as, what do we do in hospitals? Somebody comes in with a disease and maybe they were overseas. They put them into a quarantine, they quarantine them until they're made well or they're better, and then they can enter back in for the betterment of everything. Everybody doesn't come down with that disease, right? Think of the plague in the 1300s, the Black Plague. Think about how many died a, a quarter of all of Europe, or I think it was maybe in a quarter to a third of all of Europe. Nobody at that time was going, you know what, it's really mean that we have to do it. No, everybody understood it was for the betterment of humanity that we don't turn around and, and just you know, infect everybody that way. But I want you to think about the spiritual application of this far more than the physical of the disease. How does that work spiritually when we're continuing in sin and sin begins to propagate in our heart and spread and then it spreads to those around us because they begin to look to us and say, well, hey, if they're doing it, it must be okay. Now, look, I'm not trying to lay a trip on you, but just understand there's people are always watching. People are always watching you. Your lives are living epistles as believers in Christ. And he says, look, if there's this kind of defilement, we, we need to deal with it. We need to deal with it. We want to get, we want to repent and get in right relationship. Lord, cleanse, you know, restore what the haker worms destroyed, restored God, because you can restore anything. You can restore anyone spiritually. Praise Jesus, right? We have a God that can restore and redeem. His hand isn't slack. He, he doesn't have a, a, a limited tank of forgiveness. For those that are humble and willing to come with a contrite heart a circumcised heart he says I'll make all things new the old things will pass away you will be made completely new as though you never ever sinned before So God desires to do that but but he doesn't want the propagation or he doesn't want this to he's protecting the children and he stops to tell them this just before they're going to continue on because they're going to eventually get to this point where they're going to have to start to go into the promised land that God called them to go, to go into and to take. But he's saying, hey, is there sin in the camp? We all need to do this individually. We need to do this as a church. I need to do this as the senior pastor here. I need to look. Is there sin in the camp? Is there, in my heart? I need to start with my heart. Is there sin in the leadership? Are, are we doing things we ought not to do that don't line up with Scripture? Well, then we need to make a change. Because we can't compromise. Because a little leaven spoils the whole lump. That's not being legalistic. That's submitting and surrendering to God's will be done. You, you know what I mean? I, I, I'm, I'm kind of talking with you about this. We all have to deal with it. We all are aware of the sin in our lives. We want to confess that sin. We want to repent for that sin. And we want to be restored. We don't want to just try to hide it. We don't, that's why I believe he put even leprosy in here because he was giving us an example of leprosy spreads. For a time it can be hidden. But then eventually it begins to come to the skin and the nose and the ears and the appendages because less blood flow. You can't hide it. Think of the spiritual aspect of that. You can't hide your sin. God knows Better to go to him for help, amen? Better to go to him for help. I I go to my father for help all the time, Lord. Cleanse my mind. I don't want to look at this thing. I don't want to think about this, Lord. Capture that thought. Take it captive. Never again, Lord. And the children of Israel did so. What is that? Beautiful obedience. And put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses. so So the children of Israel did. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel when a man or woman commits any sin that that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, that the person is guilty. So so this idea of proven guilty, not just because somebody's saying, hey, you did something, but can actually be proven. This is where we get our understanding that you're what? Innocent until you're proven guilty. It's actually a biblical commandment. Then he shall confess the sin which, is, which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full, plus one-fifth of it, 20%, and give to the one who is wrong. What is God? He's talking about restitution, restoring. If you've harmed someone, if you, to restore, this is what he's saying. If, if, the, if you accidentally you know, uh, hurt their ox and their ox was used for plowing, restore that ox, plus 20%. God was dealing with fairness. He didn't want, you know, there be a fairness issue. This isn't mercy. This isn't grace yet. This is just simple restoration, restitution, you know. For his trespass in full plus one-fifth and give it to the one he's wrong. But if the man has no relative to whom the restitution may be made for the wrong, in other words, no kin, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest in addition to the ram of the atonement which the atonement is made for him. This... You know what I love about the way the Lord does this? Is he always provides a way. Because inevitably, maybe there was somebody that did something and they wronged. Either the Lord or they wronged another person. And they wanted to make restitution. But there was no one to make restitution to. So what happens? Do they spend a lifetime of guilt? Guilt? and remorse, not being able to be set in right relationship with the wrong or restore to at least the family because there's no one left of kin. God even provided a way for that. He says, look, if that's the case, he says, go to the church, turn around, restore it there. You know, that's how he did it back in the Old Testament. Again, we're not under the law, but but back then, that's why he says, hey, even if you have, restore it there. You're set free. You've been made right. Go free. All's well. I mean, he even provided a way... Because inevitably, you know someone said, but what if? And God already said, oh, we'll cover that. Everybody. Everybody has an opportunity to be forgiven and to be restored in right relationship. Not only with their brother and sister, but with our Father in heaven. The New Testament understanding of that is what? If you've wronged somebody, he says, lay your gift down. He's talking about your offerings. Lay your offering down and do what? Go back and get right with your brother or sister first, then come back and offer your offering. That's the New Testament application of this, right? So it's not that we've lost that concept. The idea is that we should be... When our horizontal's off, our vertical's off. When we sin against a brother, we've sinned against our father. We read that in Leviticus. Every offering of all the holy things for the children of Israel, which they bring to the priest shall be his. And every man's holy thing shall be his. Whatever a man gives to the priest shall be his. Now, we're going to go into this interesting passage here uh, on unfaithful wives. And, you know, again, I'm glad we've moved past this. um, Clearly in the new covenant, I'm glad we're, we're not under this law or under this ceremonial practice here, if I can say it that way. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and speaking of adultery, okay, and a man lies with her carnally, sexual morality, fornication, that way, and it is hidden from his eyes or from the eyes of the husband, her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself. What's that mean? Not pure. She's unholy. And there was no witness against her, nor... Was she caught? So no one to turn around and do what? You're innocent until proven guilty, but if there's no one to convict, what happens? Well, God has a way of handling that too. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, he who has defiled, her, who has defiled herself, excuse me. or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself. So, God providing a way for either provision here. Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. Now, what I love about this is, please see this with me, because I know there are churches or denominations that you're to go to someone and you're to confess a sin to them, and then they're to tell you what a penance, they call it a penance, is. That is not biblical, and that is not even what we see as an example here, because this is often a passage a little straight as that. Well, this is why we do that. Well, no. What happens is, the the woman would go, or the man you know, with jealousy that way of his wife, thinking she's committed adultery, was to bring, and then they were to do what? They were to follow God's provision, and then ultimately, over time, it would be found out. Now, I'm certainly not saying that this would be a good example of what we would do today. But my point is, it's not the priest that turns around and says, you're defiled or you're clean. It's not the pastor that does that. It's the word of God. It's always the word of God that's the judge. Never the man. The man is never put in a position to be the judge, pastor or not. You'll never find that in scripture that way. Even with leprosy, remember that? When he was to go to the priest, if he was found in leprosy or with leprosy, it said what? That for two weeks he was to go away and then come back, right? And he was to check it again. And God very clearly gave a distinctive say: if it's hairy, if it looks like this, if it's turning white, if it's this, if it's become ash, if it's this, Then you are to confirm lepers. If it's not there, then you are to confirm that he is clean. Both ways, both times, what is God doing? God's saying, you go back to my word, and my word is the authority, not a man or his opinion. I love that. I love that. I'm freed by that because when if somebody comes up to me and and many times in counseling, something will come, I what is my job? My job is to draw them right back to the word of God. I don't have an opinion. My opinion doesn't matter, right? And I think if you would agree with me on that, sometimes maybe maybe your opinions, right? What's God's word say? Right? We want to sit, submit to that authority, place ourselves under that. Then then we know we're we're not dealing with someone that can be a respecter of persons, or or what if this priest was upset with this woman and you know or, or, or this man. And unfairly judged. Someone's life would be, you know, compromised because of this. But God's word and authority, right? So he says, he shall bring an offering required. Well, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and he shall bring the offering required for her. One-tenth of an ephah of a barley meal. This is the only place we see barley meal, by the way. It's not a normal portion. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it. This is not a normal offering. Right? Normally, we saw the oil and the frankincense were put on. First of all, it's not moist. The oil would moisten the offering normally, the cake, as it's called. And, and we would see that the frankincense, what does that add? When you add frankincense, or you, it's, it takes something that was bitter and it makes it a little bit sweet. So this isn't a sweet offering. This isn't something that, that is, is good that way. This is, this is dry in that way. It's not a normal offering. And because it's a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance, and the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that's on the floor and the tabernacle and put it in the water again. That doesn't sound good. I mean, after all, you got this kind of meal thick, just picture that, right? And then on top of it, you kind of pick it up and you you know, throw some of the dust. It's it's just going to be more bitter. I mean, earthly kind of, you know, not a super yummy taste, right? It's not going to be like a typical choice cake as part of an offering. It speaks to the uncleanness and the bitterness of it. That's what it's speaking to here, spiritually. Then the priest shall stand, the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head. That means let her hair down. It's kind of what it means in the Hebrew there and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy and the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse and the priest shall put her under an oath and say to the woman, if no man is lain with you and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority to be free from the bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of a curse and he shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh rot and your body swell. How does that sound, ladies? Not good. What's he speaking about here? Well, first of all, you know, this idea of rotten, right? I mean, that should bring to mind something that's not, not right, something that's putrid, right? Something that's changed, maybe smelly, breaking down, no longer good, right? That's what it should kind of bring. And this idea of your thigh, right? what it's talking about is not only the womb, because that's when, when they would say the, the thigh, that's sort of in the Hebrew that's speaking to the idea of the womb. They don't just kind of call it that. Um, and your belly swell, speaking to the intestine and everything in the stomach, that it would swell and it would expand and eventually burst. I mean, that was the idea here. It was, it was not a good thing. And may this water cause the curse to go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot, again, speaking to kind of the womb there. Then the woman shall say amen and so be it. The woman actually has to go, okay, I agree with this. You know, a woman that's without sin would have no problems. I mean after after all what does amen mean? It means so be it. Right? That's what it means in the Hebrew, right? When you say amen, you're saying so be it. So clearly if a woman's now if a woman is with sin, do you think she's really going so be it? No. It would absolutely deter, I think most men or honestly even women from wanting to engage in any type of adulterous practice, wouldn't it? Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and he shall scrape them off into the bitter water. Because if the bitter water wasn't enough and the dried cake and then everything else with the rotting, if that wasn't enough to deter you, now you're writing this in a scroll and then you're taking the scroll and scraping that (laughs) and putting that in there. I mean, ladies, have we come a long way? Amen? We've come a long way, ladies. Praise the Lord. And he shall scrape them off into the bitter water and he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse and the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, wave wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as it's a memorial portion, burn it on the altar and afterward make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall be if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly and her belly will swell, her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. What is happening here? This is almost like a public spectacle right it's It's over time. She's not sitting there, and they're not just waiting, going, wait for it, wait for it, you know, watching the belly, you know, the whole thing. It's not like that. What's happening, and the way it's presented here, is that this is all done. It's made as a public spectacle, and then she sort of goes off, and over time, because again, back then, everybody was, you know, in their camp and together, over time, they're watching this woman. Well, boy, this woman's being accused of adultery here. Well, What happens? Does her belly begin to swell? Does her womb or her thighs begin to rot? If it's not, well, then clearly she's innocent. But if it is, then it becomes a curse among her. I, I understand that this is a little bit gruesome and kind of like, Lord, why would you go to this extent? We'll have to ask Jesus when we get to heaven someday. So, But I'll tell you what, if you had punishment, And I'm not saying for women, men and women. I don't want to put any one individual in that. If there are consequences to sin, it sure does deter you from engaging in the sin, doesn't it? Now, we're not going to talk about capital punishment here today. But we will get to that in the Bible. And it is interesting. There are consequences to sin. And in a day we're living, and I I know I'm not speaking to many of you because I know you all read your Bible and you're of the same heart, But we have states that have passed laws that you can't spank a child. And I'm not talking about really hurting a child. I'm saying making the child understand there are consequences to sin. So what do you do in that position? You tell the child, go sit in their room. Okay. Their room is like an arcade. I mean, they've got TVs. They've got games. They've got everything in there. You know, without punishment, without consequence... You have anarchy, right? And, I, and again, I, I don't want to pretext this. I don't want to take this out of context because God is providing a way that if, if, if she's innocent and her husband, for whatever reason, is trying to pull some game and put a trump, you know, pull a trump card on her and say, well, you know, I, I really want a divorce. I don't really, you know, this whole thing is more. God say, oh, no, no, no. Nothing became of this. And, you know, other than obviously there was a public spectacle, but nothing happened to the woman. So men couldn't just turn around and say, oh, she committed adultery on me, and therefore I can, no, 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 no. God had a way, right? Or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he may stand the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute this law upon her. It, It was meant to resolve a state of jealousy. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her guilt, if obviously guilty. Now we're going to move into chapter 6 with our remaining you know, 15 minutes here tonight we have. We should be able to get through um, um, really this chapter. When you begin to think about uh, naz- Nazar, Nazar, right, which means consecrated. It's the root for where we get uh, set apart or consecrated from in the Hebrew. This is what we see again. Not only is God speaking to purity, as he just was, even with, against adultery and defilement of leprosy and all these other things, God is now drawing back to this, by the way, voluntary, this is a completely voluntary vow of separation to God. But what are you being separated from? From the world. From everything that was around them at the time. From everything that they would have considered normal. From all of the pagan practices that they would have seen of the Ammonites, of the Canaanites, and all the others as they were going to go and inherit this land before they even got there. Even of all the things that had, they had learned from the flesh pots back in Egypt when they were sitting around them and you know all the jokes and all the things that were wrong. God is wanting to sanctify his people and those that were willing to take this voluntary vow to truly be separated unto the Lord. God provided a way to do that. It's intimacy. God's always been a God of intimacy. He wants that true relationship and fellowship. You know, when you think in the Bible, um, we see a woman. We really don't see a woman that has taken a vow, but there was a woman, Menorah, when his wife, his wife was pregnant, right? With who? Samson. So we see she, in some ways, was under that because she could not have wine or grapes or anything like that, right? Samson certainly took the Nazarite vow, or he was to be growing up that way, judges 13,7. Who else? John the Baptist, Luke chapter one, verse 15. Who else? We read about it as we studied the book of Acts, when he was making his way back to Jerusalem. Remember he had to pay for four of his other friends that were going to be going in to the sanctuary in Acts chapter 18:18, 18, 18, when Paul himself takes a, a, a Nazarite vow. It doesn't specifically say Nazarite vow, but it says a vow in that he's to cut his hair. Where there's only one vow in our scripture where you follow a certain order of practice and it revolves around the cutting of the hair and bringing that and burning that on the fire. So this is a voluntary vow again of separation to God from the world. So it says, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself or herself to the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat any fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come, upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. So he's saying that he can let his hair grow out, basically is what we see here, until the end of the vow. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the day that he has separated himself, all the days, excuse me, that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Now, why is that? What was a dead body? It was unclean. Right, He was to go nothing unclean or anything related to sin. Because what does sin do? Sin breaks relationship with God. Hence the vow of being out of the world, separated from the world directly to God, not having anything around you break that. That vow of God, that pure holiness and that undefiled purity that God so desires for all of us. To put him first in all things. So he says, you should not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister, when they die. That means if you're doing a Nazarite vow and one of your family dies, what comes first? God or the burial? God. That's why I say often, husbands, wives, who do you love more? Do you love Jesus or do you love your spouse? You know, how about your children? How about your grandchildren? Who do you love more? Jesus. And children, who do you love more? Jesus. Otherwise, it's idolatry. It really is when we put anything in the place of God. And I know that's tough. I know that's tough because we love our children. We love our spouses. We love our families and our friends. I know it's tough. But God doesn't want us to compromise. He wants all of our hearts. He doesn't want us to hold anything back. And we're never closer to God than when we're all in. When we hold things back, boy, it's like one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom, and it is a struggle. It's hard enough living out the Christian faith, truly living out according to the Bible. But if you're wavering, well, that just makes it even more difficult because then you begin to, well, you all know, you've, you've been there, I've been there. We know what it's like. We compromise. And then a little leaven spoils the whole lump. He says, he shall not make himself unclean for his father or his mother or his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. Yeah, I, I've said this before, and I, I just was prompted by the Lord. I just thought about it. You know, as an action sermon, I watched this in my mom's life. You know, a lot of you know my mom passed away, I think, three years ago with lung cancer, and uh, as I was, you know, getting ready to come down here, and that was heavy on my heart, you know. that was didn't want to leave my mom like that. And, uh, You know, I remember my mom coming up to me and just, you know, putting her hand on my shoulder, you know, just kind of like this and saying, you need to go serve the Lord. Like, it was never, it was never an option. I was so blessed by that. You know, I was down here, I didn't wrestle. I mean, yeah, sometimes I wondered, Lord, am I doing the right thing? I'm like abandoning my mom. She's sick, she needs me, what am I doing? And God reminded me, he says, I've got her. I'm taking care of her far better than you could. And he did. And then he even brought her down to me for hospice. She fell. And he, circumstances led her to because she, she was a very independent woman. She, w- she wasn't going to move until she, she needed to. And, uh, you know, fell and hit her head. And she calls me on the way to the hospital. I fell in my head. Get to the hospital, you know. And I'm thinking, what do I have to do? And, and it's a Wednesday night. And I was at 17 Railroad, our old, uh, our old building. And the Lord clearly said, you go and teach, and then you go. I thought that is so contrary to everything I want to do in my heart. I want to be there for my mom. It wouldn't be wrong for me to be there for my mom either. It wouldn't be wrong. But God had told me, he says, no. He says, I've called you to something, and you need to be about your father's business. So when I read this and I say to you, I understand what God's saying here. But I also understand It's hard. And if you've been in those situations, I know it's hard. But the thing I can promise you is one, you find a closeness with Jesus that I never fo- found in my life before that moment because I really was depending on him. And at that same moment, my phone rang, and it was uh, Pastor Steve, I think it was, or Pastor Scott, I can't remember from Calvary Chapel, Finger Lakes, where I'd come on him. Hey, we're going right to the, ch- uh, to the hospital. We're right by your mom's bedside. How did you know? I never found out to this day. But the pastor, my pastor or my assistant pastor, he was right there with my mother. And I didn't have a worry. I was able to get up that. I don't think I even shared anything with the flock at the time. I just remember getting in the car afterwards and driving five hours. I walk in, mom's sitting up. How you doing? Good. How are you doing? I said, I think it's time you come home with me. Come to Harrisburg. It's time. Well, all right. That dresser was getting in my way. That was her way of saying she tripped. And she came down, and I had the best six weeks of my life with her. Best six weeks ever. Had I not followed the Lord's commands, I would have missed all of it. I would have missed all the opportunities. I would have missed what the Lord was doing down here. I would have missed all of it. Put first the kingdom of heaven and all these other things he will add unto you. He says, you know, he says it's because his separation to God is on his head. Verse eight, all the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. And if anyone dies very suddenly beside him, he defiles his consecrated head. And then he, he shall shave his head on the day of his cleaning or cleansing, excuse me. On the seventh day, he shall shave it. Then on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves and two young pigeons to the priest of the door of the tabernacle meeting. And the priest shall offer one as a sin offering. You understand what's going on here? He's saying, if somebody dies next to you, and you didn't intend that to happen. You've technically broken the vow, but you didn't try to break the vow. So what he says is that there's a seven-day period where you finish the end of the seven days, you go through it, you make an offering of the two turtle doves, and then you start the seven days over again. That's what happens. You're kind of repeating it and starting it over. And if you can, re- you can read in the um, rabbinical teachings, uh, or the rabbinical writings I meant to say, uh, sometimes where that's happened that there were priests, that this actually happened to her people, and they and the priests had to go through and had to restart the seven days for the person uh, conducting the Nazarite vow. So he says, and the priest shall offer as a sin offering, and the other as a burnt offering. Uh, I'm skipping around. Forgive me. I'm trying to move through this passage, but. Uh, but I think you get where we're going. He's basically saying you're bringing a sin offering and the burnt offering and making an atonement for him because he sinned in regard to the corpse and he shall sanctify his head that same day. Verse 12, he shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in its first year as a trespass offering, but the former days shall be lost. In other words, you gotta start over again because the separation was defiled, right? Now... This is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of the separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. In other words, it's public. And he shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb in its first year without the blemish as a burnt offering. And again, remember, this is completely voluntary. This is completely voluntary that he's doing this. And this is now sort of at the finishing of the vow, verse 13 and on now. We're going to read what he does to complete his vow, to complete this Nazarite vow, how he finishes it. And we're going to read about five different offerings he has to bring. Again, all voluntary. And he shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb in its first year without blemish, as a burnt offering. One ewe lamb in its first year without blemish, as a sin offering. One ram without blemish, as a peace offering. So if you're tracking, you've got a burnt offering, a sin offering, and a peace offering so far a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and the grain offering, there's number four, with their drink offering, there's number five. Then the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And the idea behind this is that the person that had taken the Nazarite vow was there with him as they were doing it, almost as they were jointly making this offering. The priest and the person under the vow together, ceremonially. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice, the sacrifice, a peace offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall also offer its grain offering and its drink offering. Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head. What's that mean again? Set apart, holy, undefiled, separated. At the door of the tabernacle of meeting, And shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice to the peace offering. What was the peace offering for? Relationship. Relationship. And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, one unleavened cake, from the basket and one unleavened wafer and put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after he shaved his consecrated hair. And the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy for the priest, together with the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering, after the Nazarite vow or excuse me, after that the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord, the offering of his separation. And besides that, whatever else, I like that. He says, and oh, by the way, and more, whatever else is in his hand that he's able to provide according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of his separation. It's beautiful. Do you want to be separated unto God? Do you desire to be consecrated? Is your life a drink offering? Is your life a... You know, a poured out offering before the Lord. Can you say what Isaiah said in chapter 6? Here I am, Lord, use me. I'm undone. You know, I have unclean lips and I'm with a people of unclean lips. You know, this is special when someone can do that. When someone has the desire and the deepest sense in their heart for that kind of worship. This is worship. Remember, this is voluntary. This is worship. Offerings are worship. Your giving, we talked about agape giving is what? In the agape box, it's your worship. Your singing is your worship. These are are all worship. You know, how do we worship? We're worshipers. We are created to be worshipers. I like that Jesus allows that. I like that we're not robots and everything's so pragmatic and programmed that, you know, I'm glad we're not under the law where we have to come and, I mean, he even tells us in the New Testament, we're to be hilarious givers, right? What is that about? It's not a, yes, we're commanded to give, but it's not, he's not doing it in a way where we're doing it as a sacrifice that way. He's done it in a way where it's our worship. It's such a, we're not under a tithe. We're not under a sacrificial tithe anymore. It's actually, you want to say, it's actually more than that. And I don't mean more than 10%. I mean, it's more than that. It's it's supposed to be heartfelt. It's, It's supposed to come from the heart, like the woman, whether it was two pence, less than a penny. But God saw that and said, that's worship. Because she was motivated by the heart. We stand and we sing. That's worship. Men and women were taking Nazarite vows because they wanted to be separated from the world. They didn't want to look like the world. They wanted to look like the king. They wanted to look like Jesus. That's worship. Remember, God's a disciple maker. Let's finish our last few verses and we'll close tonight. And he gives us a pattern for blessings. So you just read about a man or a woman who would take these steps to to put themselves before the Lord, to separate themselves from the world, to be intentional and and single-minded towards God, which we all should be as disciples of Christ. And now he goes in and he gives us a pattern for blessing. You think there's any coincidence that the order's there, that, oh, by the way, when you have a heart and you're coming after the Lord like that, and after every, I think every almost Wednesday or Sunday, I, I share this pattern of blessing with you. I actually pray over you. I don't know if you ever knew it was from Numbers chapter 6, verses 20 through, 22 through 27. But when, I, when, when your eyes are closed, I lift my hands and I'm praying over this blessing. I'm praying from God just as he did, just as he commanded Mo, the priest then to bless the people. He said, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, and even before we read that, God loves to bless his people. God loves to bless his people. You can't outgive God. Have you ever tried? You can't do it. You can't outbless God. You try to love him, he loves you more. You just can't. It's awesome. God loves the blessed people. Will the Lord bless you and keep you? I love to be kept. Don't you love to be kept, rested? The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. It's beautiful. God's heart. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. What's his countenance? His presence. The Lord lift his presence upon you, that that his presence would be here with us now and be upon you. And when he says lift up, the idea is it's attention. It's direct attention from God on the individual believer. On the individual believer, in the Proverbs he says, we're the apple of his eye. pleasant contentment here because he says, and give you peace. Don't we want peace? I want peace and not the kind of peace, you know, that the world speaks of. I want a perfect contentment in Christ because that's the only peace I understand. Everything else will be striving and contention. I want a perfect peace in Christ. And then what's he say? Well, verse 27 tells us what the fruit of the blessing is. What's the fruit this produces? He says, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel. And what? I will bless them. The fruit of it is God promises to bless in response to the blessing. So why is this any different for today? I understand this was given to Israel. I understand this is given to his people. Are you not adopted into the family of Christ? Was not Israel adopted into the family of Christ? Yes, they were, as God's chosen people. Where do we read that? If you're with us on Sunday, we just read it. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 8 says that the Gentile, you and I were adopted into the family of Christ. In Romans chapter 9, it says the same thing, that the Jew was adopted in. We're adopted children. Heirs and co-heirs of Christ. And if that be true, and I'm not trying to pretext here, but is it wrong to think that God would bless us? I don't think so. I think God likes to bless his children. He desires to do it. So let's stand, let's pray, and you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for the blessing. What a beautiful pattern for blessings. Blessings. Father, we, we thank you, Lord, that God, so many thousand years ago, Lord, you went before us and you inspired men, Moses, to write a book on a census, but, but so much more, Lord, to see this idea of truly being separated to you, Lord, to keeping ourselves holy and undefiled, Lord, and then, God, to finish off our study tonight with a blessing, Lord, God, we want want a blessing from you, Lord Jesus. Jesus, you began in your Galilean ministry on the Sermon on the Mount with blessed are the Beatitudes, Lord. You love to bless your people. God, thank you for your word. We come humbly to you tonight, and we thank you for this richness of the study of your word, Lord, and the... The fact that we know that we have a God, our Father in heaven, who loves us more than anything else. And Lord, we can be encouraged. We don't have to grow faint or weary. We don't have to be afraid. Jesus, have your way in us. Have your way in us, Lord. God, and I pray, just as you commanded Aaron and his sons, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would bless And keep your people here, Lord. That you would make your face shine upon them, Lord Jesus. That you'd be gracious to them. Lord, I pray you lift up your countenance, your presence upon them. And Lord, give them a perfect peace that only comes through you, Jesus. Give that to your people. Bless your people. And Lord, we certainly acknowledge the fruit of the blessing, God, that you would write your name we belong to you. We're blood-bought. Father, write your name upon us, upon your children. And Lord, I pray you do bless each and every one of them here tonight, Lord. Lord, I ask this and we ask this together, one to another. In your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Read ahead chapter 7 and chapter 8 for next week. Um. And God bless you all. See you Sunday as the Lord leads.